Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwartztrauber. On today's show, we're back after a holiday hiatus and a stint in Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show. We'll be back in your podcast app with our normal regularity of two to three or whatever the hell number of episodes we decide we want to put out in a week. Uh, but you can count on us to, you know, serenade you with our lovely tones. Uh, and of course, what better guest for a welcome back episode than the president of Tech Freedom and still waiting to hear what job in the administration he's going to get, Baron Soka. Baron, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, I figure this is about my last month before I, you know, go in. <laughs> Obviously. I'm I'm psyched. So first, let's congratulate ourselves because uh, over the break, the Tech Policy Podcast turned one. I mean, holy shit, this is episode 152. We are killing it, right? Yep. That's it. No no further elaboration on that. So what, we figure about what 15 of those are Jared. Yeah. So Well, obviously, I mean, we're not necessarily at serial numbers yet. I think that podcast would download it by like 5 million people, uh, but we're... Mm, we're getting there <laughs> slowly but surely. And uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review, share it with your friends. It will really help us out. Um, so let's. Well, and I, I do want to note that we actually we have hit a grand total of. Drum roll, please. Da, 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 da. Seventy thousand downloads. Look at that. That sounds so great, it, doesn't it? Just seventy thousand. Whoa, <laughs> big number. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. Can you hear the excitement in our voices? I mean, the little holiday break give us the rejuvenation we need. Um, so let's start with something fun or not fun, depending on how you view the outcome. But something a little less intense than some of the normal topics we have on the show. Flight Now. Um, we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, do you ever wonder why you don't have something like Uber for planes for general aviation? Why you can't? take a nice small plane from Logan Airport to Martha's Vineyard and pay like a hundred bucks. Uh, seems like the obvious thing you should be able to do in 2017, but you can't because when the company asked the FAA for regulatory guidance, the FAA said, thanks for coming in. Really polite of you to ask us for guidance. The answer is no, uh, your company is being shut down. Um, so they've been in a battle ever since. Uh, Tech Freedom joined with the Cato Institute, everyone's favorite libertarian organization. Second uh, favorite. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, we filed an amicus brief with them challenging the FAA. And uh, Baron, the Supreme Court said, no, nah, we're kind of busy. Like, is that what happened? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, most cases don't get cert, right? It's a... Uh, it's rare. And when you say cert, that's you file a petition for certiorari. It uh, is a petition for a writ of oh, certiorari. It's even more uh, hoity-toity. But uh, yes. yeah, that is essentially meaning you're asking the Supreme Court to consider your case. And do you have a general sense of how few cases they consider about the ones they get submitted every year? Oh, it's a minuscule percentage. I yeah. mean, the court at this point um, takes something like 70 to 100 cases a year. So, you know, we'll see. Um, the good news is that ultimately this is really going to be decided by Congress. Right. And uh, we are waiting to see whether this talk from the new administration about making innovation easier gets translated into fixing problems like this. If it does, I'll find that encouraging because the way to think about it is we talk about net neutrality and home sharing and vaping and so on. That is, if you will, the fat head of tech policy. There is a very long tail of a lot of smaller issues that uh, don't really get the attention that they deserve. And ultimately, it's up to Congress in some ways to, to set those right. Now, maybe the, the administrative agencies will take a different approach. That's good. 
right? It would be better if the FAA uh, reversed itself. And that could conceivably happen. And I suspect you'll see someone file a petition for reconsideration and some new service start up. It might not be flight now, but it's going to be something like that. But ultimately, the real answer on the flight now issue, as on basically everything else we discuss, is in the long term, you need changes to the statute. Because if the if the FAA has the discretion to say, well, we think you're a common carrier if um, if someone if a pilot posts on Facebook and has too many friends, at that point that's like holding himself out to the public to serve all comers indifferently, and that's a common carrier. And then he has to have a different kind of license and go through all these regulatory hoops. Yeah, it's a joke. The logic is crazy. And just because the Supreme Court didn't take the case does not mean that the Supreme Court agrees with the FAA. Uh, But like you said, they only take some cases. And I guess this did not rise to the level of importance where four out of the eight justices said that they wanted to hear the case. And it's worth noting, you know, this just happened on the 9th. So this is is quite fresh. The kinds of cases where the court takes... Uh, uh, review, grant cert, are agency, uh, excuse me, splits among the circuit courts, um, questions of really major importance, like Obamacare, right? And then there are occasional one-off things. It's just, it's, it's always difficult. And ultimately, if anything, what this demonstrates is not that our legal arguments are, are wanting, um, because you can never read that into a denial of, of cert but rather that ultimately you can't rely on the courts to fix these problems. Uh, The administration is going to have to do it and it's going to have to lead the way to Congress resolving the issue. Yeah. And and speaking of Congress resolving the issue, a lot of these companies kind of do an all hands on deck approach, right? They've been shut down by a regulator. So they take the legal route, they take the legislative route, whichever one gets them the relief they need first is wonderful. But uh, Mark Sanford, a uh, Republican from South Carolina, a representative in the House, used to be governor of the state. He has taken a keen interest in flight now and plane sharing and this entire issue. So for listeners who want to kind of keep track of this issue and see where it's going, see what that office is up to, because they've really been the champions on this. Um, While we're still talking about Congress, other legislation that was recently introduced into the House email privacy might come as a surprise to some listeners who haven't heard our previous episodes on ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986, I believe. Uh, But essentially, there's a loophole in our email protection. And if your email is older than 180 days, law enforcement can get it without a warrant. I mean, it seems kind of crazy. But when you think about it, you know, 1986, no Gmail, no cloud storage. Maybe that made sense. People didn't really store things that long. They, They sent files off on tapes to remote processing locations, and it was assumed that if you didn't go to the location and pick it up, that you didn't want it anymore. Yeah. Right. It was a totally different world. Right. And of course, we, we can't necessarily fault them for not anticipating this, but we can fault them for not fixing it. It's been so damn long. Yeah. I started working on this in 2010. So here we are almost seven years later, and uh, we have a bill that has been passed by the House that had, I think, did it actually reach 400? I think. Oh, no, no, no. It was better than that. It was 418 to zero. And I think think I about think, partisanship today. Yeah. Think about this past election. We got 418. And it had been building steam with co-sponsors before that. And yet we still can't get it done because it has gotten tied up in number one in the Senate in particular, this issue of administrative agencies getting access, no, no, most notably our dear friends at the Federal Trade Commission, yeah. uh, among others. 
Uh, and number two, then this question about uh, law enforcement access more generally and international access, and we, we can talk a little bit about that. And I, I just have to say, uh, underscore, that this administration's talked a big game about changing things. The Congress has said things are going to be different. If they can't pass a fix for this, which, by the way, is only the first half of ECPA reform. This is content, email and stored files. And there's still location stuff to By deal GPS, with. GPS, yeah. right? If they can't pass this after seven years, that can't be done quickly. This Congress is just not, it's not going to be the change that people expect. No, and, and for listeners who are thinking, something passes the House of Representatives, 418 to zero. You know, you don't have to be a civics expert to wonder why it didn't just go through the Senate and get signed by President Obama because this happened last uh, in the last Congress. Um, but what happened was uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, calling you out, uh, <laughs> tried to attach this thing called the Ector Fix, E-C-T-R. Uh, what is that? Electronic Communications and Transactional Records. Freaking alphabet soup here in tech policy. Uh, but he tried to attach this, and he was essentially saying, okay, I totally agree that you shouldn't need a warrant to look at the content of an email, or you should need a warrant rather to look at the content of an email, right? There's a basic constitutional principle. We can all agree on it. 418 congressmen, they can't agree what day it is, but they said that they all agree that you should just get an effing warrant to read Americans' emails. But he said, you know what we're going to do though, as a compromise, I'll make it so that the FBI can read your metadata without a warrant, essentially using this thing called the national security letter, which is about the level of oversight of asking your buddy at the water cooler in the FBI to sign off on something. Basically, you can sign off it on, on it internally. There's no uh, oversight. And we had a couple people from CDT on the show before talking about this issue. But really- And, and specifically what we're talking about here, it, when you say metadata, right, that, that doesn't mean anything that. to most people. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about things, it's it's your entire digital foot, fingerprint. It's your, your email history, who emailed who and when, your web browsing history, logs of your text messages, detailed location information. The FBI says, well, we're only interested in, in the top level domains like um, Trump2016.com <laughs> or HillaryClinton.com, right? But even that does reveal sensitive information about you. Right. And moreover- that is not that distinction is not actually in the statute or the bill that we're talking about. That's the FBI saying, "Oh no, no, don't worry. We're just we're just going to look at that. We're not going to look at the, you know, um, porn.com slash whatever's yeah. after the porn." Yeah, to they see just what know that you in. love porn. They just the, the FBI has no interest in digging into your particular weirdness. <laughs> but of course, that should comfort us, right? I mean, this is this is and and this is what I said in our statement about this. I said essentially the Senate is trying to bargain away your rights in one area so that you can get your rights in a different area. So they're essentially asking privacy advocates to say that making this compromise is is better than the status quo. And a lot are going to say no, right? I'd rather just fight the good fight on ECPA, however freaking long it takes, because we've already been at this for seven years, than giving away access to metadata, which in some cases can be more sensitive than the actual contents of an email. You can tell a lot about a person based on their metadata. So I mean, like you said, you know, it passes the House. If if the Republicans have any interest in getting rid of this perception, you know, warranted or not, that there's a rift. Uh, uh, I see what you did there. Ah, uh, yeah, right. We love puns at Tech Freedom. Warranted or not, that Silicon Valley and Trump just don't get along. They didn't give him any money, yada, yada. If they want to get rid of that, is there a single easier thing to do than to sign ECPA into law? I'm sorry, when I say ECPA, I mean the Email Privacy Act, which would reform ECPA. Not ECTOR. Right, which is bad. <laughs> Just remember that, you know, when we're talking about our alphabet soup. 
All right. So we've talked about flight now. That's a fun one. We've talked about email privacy. That's a fun one. Baron, we recently did an episode about what to expect from a Trump FCC that was post-election but pre-New Year's. Recently, media outlets have been reporting that Trump is open to the idea of a re- an overhaul of the FCC, right? It's not just going to be like a you know trim around the edges kind of thing. I mean, do you have any reaction to that, this idea that that there's going to be serious reform and not just policy changes? Well, that's what we've been asking for for a long time. And it's not just a, a right-wing idea. Um, when Republicans ran the agency, uh, Kevin Martin um, ran the agency in a um, tyrannical way that is not so different from the way that Tom Wheeler ran it. Uh, and Democrats were pissed. And uh, our friends at Public Knowledge had a whole FCC reform project. And they laid out a lot of good ideas about how to improve the agency's processes. Uh, Larry Lessig, the godfather of the inter- uh, internet left, went much further. Uh, he, in 2008, said, just just burn it down. Abolish the FCC. Start over. It, it can't be fixed. It's a junior varsity Congress that lobbyists uh, capture. And of course, and, every time you point that out, people accuse you of taking his remarks out of context. But Well, you should read the piece for yourself. <laughs> I mean, he said the FCC was a fundamentally twisted agency. Now, he wanted to build a new one, you know, we would prefer basically that the agency's functions be reapportioned. There's no reason that competition and consumer protection issues for Google and Facebook or Twitter or Yelp should be handled by a different agency on a different basis from those that involve Verizon and Comcast and so on. So anyway, the short version is, uh, as I've said many times before on this show, and you can go back and listen, we'll put this in the show notes, to previous episodes about uh, past efforts at reform Basically, the answer is going to be something between the Federal Trade Commission handles this stuff and the FCC works more like the Federal Trade Commission. That's the high-level answer. Specifically, as a prelude to whatever Congress does, whatever compromise is struck, I think the first thing that's going to happen, and and by first I mean in in a matter of two, maybe three months, is the FCC is just going to say, look, the, uh, the previous claims of legal authority that underlay the broadband privacy regulations and the two open internet orders and, and a lot of other internet regulation, we just don't think those are accurate readings of the statute and they'll give up authority. They'll say broadband's not a common carrier under Title II and Section 706, which we've talked about before, is not uh, an independent grant of authority. And when they do that, they'll essentially hand broadband in general over to the Federal Trade Commission, that will be the new status quo. And the question will be, how do we make sure the FTC is a competent regulator of technology? And it is already broadly doing that. There are a lot of things that we can do. We've talked a lot on the show about FTC reform. Some of that means building up an in-house technical capability. I'd like to see there be an entire bureau of technology that's able to guide the FTC's casework, just as there's a bureau of economics. Uh, and that means transferring staff over. But, you know, that's ultimately the future. What Congress does, it's hard to say. And just to get on our uh, soapbox a little bit here, we've kind of had a bit of an I told you so moment on this because tech freedom from uh, the beginning of this latest iteration of the net neutrality debate, let's call it part three, because there are three court cases that kind of lay out the history of the issue. Uh, you know, 2014, Tom Wheeler in power, Obama in power, not much chance of tech freedom's vision being enacted, right? We were more critics then, uh, still going to be critics. But we said, look, f- 
Fred Upton, John Thune, Republicans in Congress are offering Democrats a deal, which, I mean, if I had to game it out, I'd say it gives them about 70% of what they want. Oh, more. Republicans. Much more. Yeah. I mean, whatever happens now is not going to look like that, probably. But they offered a deal. And part of the logic of that deal was you are essentially betting that Hillary Clinton is going to win the election that all of Obama's policies will be calcified, right? This notion that, okay, even if Republicans four years from now or eight years from now manage to unseat Hillary or take the open seat in the president's presidency, then by then Republicans won't give a crap about net neutrality. There won't be any political will to get rid of it. But we said, look, you're, I mean, you're really gambling here. And now we have a situation where we called for legislation. We said that would last more than one election cycle. They told everyone to F off, frankly, and the administration instructed Congress not to work together on this issue and do something. And now people are freaking out that Tom Wheeler's entire legacy, all of the things he passed, are going to go up in flames. And that's, you know, even if we those are things we support, getting rid of those policies, it's not a healthy way to do communications policy, right? To have one election mean that the entire thing burns down. There's a better way. But of course, the whole point here is that most people want the freak out. It's not about the issues. It's about being able to get all bent out of shape, say that the sky is falling, and raise money from your donor base to keep the fight going, right? Unfortunately, that is what tech policy has become for all too many organizations in this space and the, the groups on both sides uh, who actually just want to deal with the substantive issues and resolve these, resolve these fights have been ignored. And I think now we have an opportunity to basically push aside the people who just want to scream and jump up and down and instead talk about what can actually be done. So we've said this before. We've said this in, in a New Year's op-ed. At Tech Freedom, we are opening our doors to revive those conversations with people across the political spectrum. That's what my former think tank did. The Progress and Freedom Foundation back in 2004 convened the Digital Age Communications Act project to try to figure out how should we rewrite the Communications Act. And they got people to agree across the political spectrum, including Howard Shalansky, who is Obama's regulatory czar now, right? That's the spirit that we are going to operate in now. But the baseline for that conversation is the Federal Trade Commission is going to be the broadband regulator. Yeah, and that's going to happen because, as you mentioned, that doesn't really require some nope. grand act by Congress. It's All it does pure is agency FCC action. can just say we changed our mind. And then the question becomes, what does Congress do? There is a range of options. We're going to do more shows on that. Yeah. But, but it's better for everybody that these issues finally be resolved because if nothing else, look, if you're afraid of, of Trump and a Republican administration and you're afraid that companies that were on the wrong side of the election might suffer – you need to start constraining the discretion of the regulator. And yeah. there is no more powerful regulator with more control over media and discourse in this country than the FCC. That's something that people across the political spectrum should be able to agree on. Yeah, absolutely. And we should uh, continue on this topic of telecom because there is so much common ground on the topic of broadband deployment. And we've long said that we believe that most Americans who were outraged at their internet provider, who signed petitions calling for Title II, very strict net neutrality regulation, what's really motivating them? Is it an ideological preference for government-run industry? Or is it just they want better speed, faster service, better customer service, more options, more competition, right? Those are things everyone wants, left, right, whatever. Um, 
And because the FCC lost a case on government-run broadband, which was very much the FCC's preferred solution to a lack of competition in broadband, it was just government will build its own network and then that'll compete with the private sector and yay, everyone's better off. Uh, We've had many shows about why that doesn't work. But because that issue was settled and the FCC does not have the authority to just overturn state laws about broadband, that sets up this debate in every state house around the country and they're all going to most of them are going to be convening this month talking about what they're going to do this session and where is the common ground on broadband deployment between left and right how can republican state legislatures if you've looked at the election results they run most of them how can they get the democratic support they need to get good broadband policy well we've talked about this before it's a mixture of um, libertarian smaller government things and um, progressive-friendly, smarter government things. So in the first category, it's get the government out of the way. Uh, local government, state government, the federal government is an obstacle to deployment in, in all sorts of ways, large and small. It is uh, difficult to get um, hardware installed to do the deployment. Uh, you can't get permission in big cities. Look at Austin and Kansas City. They incentivize Google to deploy by, in large part, getting out of the way. Yeah, so it wasn't like a subsidy or just a BS tax incentive, right? It was just they paved the way. Yeah, there, there's a streamlining of permitting. There's a lot of there are a lot of best practices here. And and on that score, I, I think you're going to see these issues be hashed out in essentially three arenas. You've already mentioned the state legislatures. I think in some sense, those will be the lagging indicator. I think the two that will really drive this will be, number one, the, uh, the new FCC, especially if Ajit Pai, the current a senior Republican becomes chairman, I think is going to become less focused obsessively on regulating our way to competition and more focused on uh, competition advocacy, on creating a forum for discussing best practices. What should states and localities be doing if they want to encourage deployment? Ajit has embraced and run with an idea that we proposed two years ago. And I'm, I'm proud of this as one of our most original suggestions, saying that the FCC's um, greatest untapped uh, expertise is in this area of broadband deployment. They have a vehicle for, for bringing together state and local and federal people to talk about this. And it's not just regulation. It's not just the public service commissions. It's the, the State Department of Transportation. It's local people who deal with building codes. It's the people who do procurement for lamps, uh, street lamps on, on the sidewalk. You know, are those capable of carrying 5G antennas? Are the sidewalks being installed, new ones, so that there can be conduit and power installed for, for doing 5G deployment? That, that's an area where the FCC could be a leader in that second category, which is not, it's not libertarian as such. It's saying, look, these are all government-owned assets, and the government should be building a smart infrastructure and should be funding it by leasing that public asset to the private sector. I think you could get a lot of agreement there, and it's going to happen at the FCC and in Congress, where some of these things have started to move. There was good bipartisan legislation that moved in the House last year, didn't pass the Senate. So there's a lot to be done. It's going to be a big focus for us. And importantly, and this is the, the I mentioned there were three arenas. There's the states, there's the FCC, and then the third one is going to be the administration is going to put forward some big infrastructure stimulus package. That is going to force a conversation about conduits and fiber-ready infrastructure because if if concrete or asphalt is poured somewhere where you could conceivably install a fiber or you might do a 5G deployment, it's just criminal to think that that would be done without thinking ahead 
to how to install broadband. Yeah, because digging up the road a second time is insanely expensive, whereas yeah. adding in a couple pieces of smart infrastructure, even dumb infrastructure like conduits, it's not that much more money. Bingo. And the point here is the government wouldn't be running the broadband network. The government would be building the truly dumb pipes, literally pipes yeah. in most cases, and making that available for private companies. And, you know, the more the merrier. I'd let a thousand Google fibers bloom. Right. So another issue we're going to be working on in the disruptive innovation space is, you know, home sharing. And there's other sharing economy battles as well. But we were wondering the other day in a conversation we had with a colleague, how did this debate get so shitty, right? I mean, you have nimbyism, not in my backyard. People are just annoyed that there's a bunch of young kids with suitcases in their neighborhood causing a ruckus. Um, we've talked about how nuisance laws can be better enforced, how you should just deal with that on a local level, not using a hammer, use a scalpel. Uh, but then there's also this whole weird thing where the hotels are now aligned with the affordable housing people as if price gouging hotels ever gave a crap about the rent being too high in New York, but it's a expedient alliance. It's very convenient for the two because their goal is to uh, cut down Airbnb and home away. But really, you know, all we're doing is debating, you know, whether something is good or bad. What is the root of this problem? It's not enough housing. It's not enough affordable housing. People say the rent is too damn high. There's actually a political party in New York named after that and a very eccentric gentleman named Jimmy McMillan who runs for mayor every single time. But how is that what conservatives and libertarians and free marketers, is that what they should be talking about? Is how do we make housing cheaper instead of just defending companies, which always seems very cynical? A absolutely. To me, this is the next uh, social justice issue that the right and left can agree on as a transpartisan issue. We saw this with criminal justice reform, right? Affordable housing is in many ways very similar. Even that term I don't like using because affordable housing has come to mean mandates and subsidies. Yeah, government like, right? or government provided or government subsidized, right? Right. Yeah. right. And, and no one's been focused on all of the many things that just make construction difficult. This is a pet interest of mine. But it does intersect with tech policy because I, I actually think that for all the attention that immigration into the United States gets... Really, and, and people rightly understand that labor is a, the key input in the innovation sector, right? You need smart people from around the world. You also need smart people from around the United States. And in both cases, wherever someone happens to be born, the key limiting factor on America's innovation sector is housing. Oh my God, good luck Good luck hiring someone in Manhattan and not paying them like seventy dollars to $100,000 as a starting salary because you're asking them to live in poverty. Or even, even Austin. I mean, every... Every city in America that has a vibrant uh, innovation hub, right, with the exception perhaps of Detroit, which was basically, you know, kind of bombed and start over, everyone else is dealing with this issue. So it's an issue that we're hoping to get more involved in. You'll hear a little more from us on this potentially at, at South by Southwest. And, and I just think it's important for people to understand that this is an innovation issue and that the, to, to get back to your original point about Airbnb, the frustration you're seeing about home sharing is really misdirected rage. Because this is actually what they're concerned about. It's all the things that government does to restrict the supply of housing, just as government restricts the supply of broadband. If this administration wants to be smart, if Republicans in Congress want to be smart, if state legislators want to be smart, this sort of, think of this as sort of a supply side social justice, right? You can't solve these problems without asking, how do you get more of the thing that everybody wants?
We've also been spending 2016 working a bit on autonomous vehicles, on drones. Uh, we've done episodes in the past about comments we filed, you know, warning against things like prior approval on driverless cars because that really stifles innovation and experimentation. Um, we also filed an amicus brief in a lawsuit against the FAA because they were right before Christmas of last year. They said every kid who gets a drone that weighs more than half a pound has to pay $5 and go into a government database. And our argument wasn't even necessarily that registering drones is bad per se. It was more that the FAA just didn't even bother to ask for public comment on this. You know, looking at- Terrible head, precedent. Yeah, exactly, right? Looking ahead to 2017, you know, autonomous vehicles, drones, a lot of similarities between those two issues. Is the real issue here going to be permission, Baron? I mean, getting to the philosophy uh, under which you founded this organization, dynamism, being comfortable with the fact that there are things that are messy, that there's going to be a drone crash on someone's lawn, that an autonomous vehicle is going to screw up once, and just kind of being okay with the fact that there's going to be trial and error and comfortable with the messiness, comfortable with pri uh, privacy concerns, cybersecurity concerns, but not letting those hypothetical fears get in the way of life-saving technology, at least in the case of driverless cars. Prior approval, is that going to be the issue in 2017? Well, it's funny. We were both at the Consumer Electronics Show. If you walk around the floor there, it's it's really inspiring because you see you see dynamism in a very real, concrete way, which is to say in 100,000 small applications. It's not one big thing. It's all of those things, right? And then you get to the drone areas where they're, they're in these neat little fenced-in cages, and they've, they, they have to comply with the FAA, who's got a booth around the corner. Oh, yeah. I've got, my, I've got a picture up on Facebook, if any of you are friends with me, where I, I did a nice trolling picture in front of the FAA booth, which said, ask us about drone safety. And Baron and I actually found out that not only were they there with a friendly face to just provide information, they were going around the floor and logging companies and registering them, basically doing like regulation at the Consumer Electronics Show, which is very ironic because CES is all about permissionless innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, the point is it's, it was a very vivid mental image for putting innovation in a literal box. Yeah. Right. And and that, you know, the, the problem is, and this is really true across all of the issues we work on, when you, when you think about the administration's picks for cabinet secretaries and so on, whatever else you may say about them, you know, the one thing that I think they do have right as a as a general matter, is that we do need outside the box thinking, right? I mean, the it's really hard for people inside these agencies to conceive of how you would do something differently. The, the whole conversation about net neutrality and the FTC, it's just really hard for most people to just imagine what it would mean to leave net neutrality to the FTC. And similarly with drones, it if you're at an agency that has just mindlessly regulated airplanes for decades, it's really hard to imagine um, other ways of dealing with the concerns that drones raise. Right. And so our work, and this is the point of dynamism, is to say sometimes, the, the often, the best answer is not some neat and tidy regulatory comprehensive scheme, but uh, a patchwork of, of layers of regulation. Some of them are tort actions that you could bring against your neighbor if someone infringes on your privacy. Right? Those are better ways of dealing with, uh, with those concerns than, than a nice uh, you know, top-down, here's a line in the sand that we can draw. And your example of vaping, I think, is the clearest example of that mentality. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we're talking about California as a hub of innovation. It's also the capital of paparazzi in America. And there is going to be 
a misuse of a drone in terms of trying to snoop on celebrities. And we can react with a hammer and we can say that California state government must pass a law saying that every celebrity's house has this giant protective zone over it because they pay a lot of property taxes. Or we can say, okay, someone effed up, right? This was a violation of their privacy. It was not cool that they did this, but can this be handled in court? Could we just kind of figure this out as adults with a handshake? I mean, there are other options than just there ought to be a law that insert any issue in tech policy. There ought to be a law that blank. And specifically, there was actually a bill in California that would have drawn a height limit. Right. Just would have said, you know, you can't you can't flow. I can't fly below this height in a populated area because you, you get too close to people. Yeah, that's great for innovation. Right? That's a great example of the stasis mentality of just, just draw a, a line. It's really clear, right? Instead of, well, it's going to vary. And sometimes people may get too close and you should be able to bring an enforcement action against them. Yeah. So you and I need to head to a meeting soon where we can rant further about tech policy in a different environment. But, um, you know, there's so many issues we work on. Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight, uh, to plug, to kind of tell our listeners what to expect from our organization as we grow, as we look to be more influential and work with more partners on the left? I mean, just take your pick. Oh gosh, I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, I can help you. FTC, right? That's the Federal Technology Commission. It's actually the Trade Commission, but we've coined the term uh, Federal Technology Commission because it is the de facto regulator of technology in this country and will be more so after broadband is returned under its jurisdiction. What should people be thinking about as Donald Trump takes office? The Federal Trade Commission is down to two members, one Republican and one Democrat. And what's it going to do? Well, I think we could see a real inflection point. Uh, we, we often say that um, we've waited for the last uh, 20 years for uh, an overhaul of the FCC, of telecom law. Uh, but it's been even longer in the case of the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, basically, the last time that Congress really rethought the agency uh, was 1980. Uh, under Jimmy Carter, the very uh, deregulatory, smart regulatory Democrats. Yeah, and they'd overstepped their bounds on like regulating serial ads. Oh, regulating everything. Yeah, they had gone crazy. I mean, it was it was a bad moment. The FTC almost didn't survive, frankly. Right. So that that that's we're, we're it's not that we're in the same moment where the agency has has become the national nanny again, as it was dubbed back in 1980 by the Washington Post. Uh, but we are going to see a a, a very um, much overdue conversation about FTC reform. And for every 20 people who do telecom policy, there's maybe one who pays any attention to the Federal Trade Commission. So it's an area where we really have a a unique perspective to offer. And um, we've laid this out in two reports. Um, It's it's a harder thing to digest than, than just a debate over net neutrality, good or bad, yes, no. Uh, but it's really important, and it's it's important precisely because it affects everyone. All the issues we talk about, it's not just broadband, it's not just privacy, and it's not just data security. It's every single company we deal with is potentially going to run into the Federal Trade Commission. And it could be in cases of product design. It's especially going to be in the Internet of Things. You know, all these evolving technologies, that long tail I mentioned, this is the way to think about it. The, the agencies you've heard of, you know, the FAA and, and, and the FCC, those are really um, at the fat head of the distribution. The FTC governs those as well as the very long tail. So we're focused on, on those and essentially ensuring that the way the agency operates in the future is, uh, is really isn't and creates an environment of permissionless innovation 
uh, doesn't overregulate those companies, does protect consumers, but also stands up for consumers. And, and I, I think this is maybe a good way to close. We've talked about this on the show before. The Federal Trade Commission, in a way, is a different paradigm of regulation. I mean, everyone today assumes that regulation means you, know, you write rules or maybe you bring enforcement actions. Either way, yeah, it's a law passed you, by Congress. It's a court decision. It's a you know, it's a rule written. Right. By well, you're, you're telling companies what to do. Right. Exactly. That's what people think of as the role of government. There's another role that has gotten much less attention than it deserves. But if you go back and read, for example, the the the, the great history, uh, profits of regulation, one of my favorite books. I reread it this uh, this Christmas. That tells a very different story. Where the role of of regulators in part has been um, to create sunshine, to look into what an, an industry does, write reports about it, but also advocate on behalf of consumers. Come out and say, you know, it would be good if uh, if X, Y, or Z happened, and especially to go to state and local lawmakers and regulators and say, what you're doing is going to hurt consumers. And I think it's a travesty that in the case of Austin, when they kicked out uh, the ride-sharing companies or... Uh, or New York, New York City, where they kicked out uh, home-sharing companies. Federal Trade Commission didn't say a peep, right? They should be the federal government's vehicle, not for telling state and local governments that they must do something, but simply explaining to them what the costs are and helping them to see the difference between uh, falling for an established interest like the hotels. And and quite frankly, that's going to happen much more easily at the state and local level, right? To see the difference between that and actually standing up for consumers that could be a paradigm shift if if the new FTC is actually willing to make that a consistent part of its work today, as it was briefly in 2003, 2004 with online sales of caskets and and contact lenses and, uh, and, and wine and such, and then back in the 80s when the FTC did 10 times as much work in this department. Looking ahead, uh, both of us will be at South by Southwest doing different panels. You will be doing one, Making Law on Mars. So if you're going to be in Austin for South by Southwest and you are as uh, geeky about space law as Baron or just curious, you should definitely check that out. Or if you're just a degenerate like me and you want to look at my panel on vaping, uh, check that out too. I'll be moderating a great panel with some experts in the space. And uh, in terms of this show, you know, we're really excited that it's been a successful year. We love that people love the show, but we want to up our game for sure. One piece of feedback we've received uh, is more debate. Uh, Baron and I often disagree. Just not, I think we should have less debate. Yeah, just not about tech See? policy. He's more Bach, I'm more Beethoven. We disagree on a lot of things like that, just not tech policy, because uh, that would make me a shitty employee. Uh, but we're going to try to get more debate, You know, a couple more voices from the left. I mean, this is all about bipartisanship, right? And rather than say, oh, Republicans control everything, you know, yay, we won. I mean, no, it, it's, it's more about how do we bridge the divides? How do we get broadband deployment done in a bipartisan way. So, And that's going to involve bringing on a more diverse set of voices onto the Tech Policy Podcast to talk about these issues. And in particular, I think the most interesting thing over the next few years is that you are increasingly going to see uh, debates between conservatives and libertarians. Yeah. You know, in other words, so the dynamism, you know, which is fundamentally what we are, um, even more than libertarians, it doesn't belong on the left or the right. We're going to find allies on both sides of the aisle, and we're going to find disagreements on both sides of the aisle. It's easy to find alliances when you're in opposition on something, right? It's yeah. um, So the traditional debates may change, yeah. and you may see new fault lines, especially around issues like— uh, Immigration and trade, which were two big ones where the traditional Republican— 
philosophy might be more free market, but the current party is a little bit less so on immigration and trade. So that just, might be an interesting one. Like 180 degrees less so. <laughs> but also things like cybersecurity. I mean, this administration is obsessed with the issue of cybersecurity. The attention that has been paid to Hillary Clinton's damn emails and the Russian hacking and so on makes it a critical priority that they do something about cybersecurity. And for reasons we've discussed on past shows, that something could be very bad. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Um, and you'll be hearing from us, of course, on all the issues we work on. I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you like the show enough to donate to Tech Freedom, that would be great. It would help cover the costs of creating the show. So techfreedom.org. Tax deductible. Donate. Yes, tax deductible, of course, because we are a charity. Um, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Uh, send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org if you want to be on the show, if you want to recommend someone else for the show, if you just want to tell us how crappy we are. Uh, I like reading it, so feel free to send it. And, and, and just share the podcast on Facebook. Yes, don't, please. Don't complain. No. But, you know, just share it with your friends. Yeah, write in an iTunes review, because that honestly does help. I mean, I've been asking, and you guys haven't been doing it, so freaking do it already. Have you written an iTunes review? I'm pretty sure I did, but I can't remember. Has your mom? Uh, she doesn't have iTunes. Oh. That's a lesson. We'll do a lesson on that next week. That's, that's going to be the podcast, how to download iTunes. <laughs> It'll be like a TechCrunch podcast. Anyway, that's it. See you next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.